Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the Cinematheque at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Jim Healy, and I'm the Cinematheque's Director of Programming. While our campus theatrical venues remain closed, the Cinematheque is continuing our series of movies you can watch at home for free with the recently released action drama The Marksman, starring Liam Neeson and featuring a screenplay co-written by UW-Madison alum Danny Kravitz. In The Marksman, Neeson stars as Jim, an aging, widowed rancher living along the Arizona-Mexico border who is faced with losing his property. Jim's life is thrown into further turmoil when he decides to protect Miguel, played by Jacob Perez, a young boy who has been pursued into the U.S. by vicious and determined cartel assassins. While Jim relies on his wits and his mysterious military past to deliver Miguel to safety in Chicago, a special bond develops between the two that provides the unexpectedly touching heart at the center of this contemporary western and road movie. Beginning Thursday, March 18th through Sunday, March 21st only, the Cinematheque is providing a limited number of opportunities to view The Marksman at home for free. To receive instructions on how to access the movie, send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu and simply remember to include the word Marksman in the subject line. No further message is necessary. On this episode of Cinema Talk, our special guest is Danny Kravitz, who co-wrote the screenplay of The Marksman with Sun Prairie, Wisconsin resident Chris Charles. A former student of film within our Department of Communication Arts and graduate of UW-Madison, Danny Kravitz spoke to us from his home in Chicago, where he teaches screenwriting at Columbia College. We do recommend watching The Marksman before listening to our spoiler-filled talk. Here now is my discussion with Danny Kravitz. Danny Kravitz, welcome to Cinema Talk. Uh, before we get to your contributions to The Marksman, can you tell us about the journey that took you from UW-Madison student to screenwriter of a major Hollywood production? Sure. And uh, thanks for having me, Jim. Um, so I graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a degree in radio, television, and film. It was a liberal arts degree. And I you know, my focus was more film. And when I got out of school, I very, very, very quickly said to myself, I want to write screenplays, you know, I just want to do this. And so, you know, I was pursuing a career in the arts. I was trying to work in film. I also was very involved uh, with music. I was the host of the open mic in the, at the Rathskeller, you know, and I was playing in band. So I was kind of like, oh, I'll pursue all my artistic pursuits. And screenwriting was one of them. So I was in Chicago. I moved to Chicago and I started writing my first screenplay while working as a waiter because for most of my twenties, I was in the service industry writing screenplays and, you know, doing different music stuff, record deals, and just trying to make it in the arts. And that first screenplay was literally about working in a restaurant. It was called the restaurant and it was uh, kind of modeled after the movie, the paper with Michael Keaton and Robert Duvall. Well, written by another uh, Wisconsin native, David Kep. Oh, yes. Yes. Who's been, who's been a guest of the Cinematheque in the past. 
Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, David Kep is amazing. I'm a huge fan of so many of his his movies, and and I adored that movie. And I thought the one day structure, you know, just kind of one crazy day at the paper would be great for one crazy day at the restaurant. And it was, you know, I was kind of learning how to write. And admittedly, that that script is a mess. But I was learning a little bit about structure already uh, with that first script, trying to place it all in a 24-hour period. And then um, after that, I wrote another script with a fellow Madison friend and alum who studied film with me, whose name is Dean Geller. And we wrote a script that was a little more Hollywood-esque. And it was about my family's history in Cleveland. I have um, relatives, grandfather and his brothers, who were selling sugar to the mafia during Prohibition. And we thought, oh, and this goes back, you know, a lot of years. And we thought, oh, that would be cool for a movie. And we kind of wrote our, like, little godfatherish kind of story about, you know, the the twenties and prohibition and this Jewish family who's kind of making a deal with the devil and the patriarch of the family doesn't want the young sons of the family to get into this, you know, criminal enterprise and, or get any deeper than selling sugar is not really a crime, but selling it to, you know, people who are making alcohol was a crime. So that script, um, very quickly got us some recognition in Hollywood. We signed with our first agent from that script and, you know, optioned it to a guy who made the movie Lean on Me, if you remember that Morgan Freeman movie. And then it just kind of went from there, a a continual process of writing a script, optioning it, and or getting a little bit of interest, but not quite enough to get made. And, you know, after that script, I wrote another one, and then another one, and then eventually the managers or representation that I had were more and more uh, kind of... uh, active or um, had, had, had more relationships in Hollywood. So I was kind of moving my way up as my writing and scripts were getting better. And that kind of, you know, that's kind of the medium length answer to, you know, that kind of got me to the point where I wrote The Marksman and then, and then it was, it was go time. Now, were you uh, teaching at Columbia College uh, before you started writing The Marksman? Yes. Yes. I started teaching when I realized that I had um, no skills other than uh, bartending and waiting tables and I wanted a regular gig, you know, I was like, well, I'm writing, I'm doing music stuff and I'm writing screenplays and I'm working in, in the service industry, which is fine, but it wasn't as conducive to, to the creative arts as I, you know, wanted. I just really wanted a regular gig. Uh, and, I thought, well, I could teach screenwriting. I've had a little bit of professional success. You know, I've optioned some scripts. I know a few things. And I called up Columbia College and they hired me, which is crazy why they did, because I showed up late to both interviews I had, because I (laughs) forgot. Like, I was sabotaging myself. I was so intimidated at the idea of teaching. But I did start teaching. And then um, I think I was working on one script uh, that I wrote before The Marksman when I first started teaching. And then within probably three or four years of teaching, I wrote or started working on The Marksman, actually with a former student of mine, one of my first students in at Columbia. His name is Chris Charles. He's presently my writing partner. He co-wrote The Marksman with me. And the cool thing about that is I really learned how to become a writer when I started teaching. I mean, I knew mm-hmm. a few things and I'd read some books and I studied film, of course, but having to show up and lecture about how movies really 
work or don't work. It was great. Well, how did that how did that work then in terms of making you a better writer? Was it because it just forced you to look harder at films and and closer at them and how they worked, or or was it looking at your own uh, work and 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 figuring out what what was making it work and what wasn't? Well, it was a it was a combination. The kind of the first leading into the second, you know, and and I taught primarily screenwriting classes, so in having to look critically. And when I say critically, I mean like look under the hood at a movie and how the script was structured and um, what it was ultimately about thematically and what type of movie it was, meaning like is it one of those handful of stories like a revenge story or a love story or a Mm -hmm. coming of age story and and learning about archetypal characters and learning about what uh, really gets a second act of a movie moving and what keeps it moving and what's the you know, the point of no return and, you know, all these things that you start to learn when you study other movies allows you to be critical of your students' work in a positive way. When I say critical, I mean allows you to help teach them. And then you go back to your own work and you're like, wow, I actually understand how to keep the second act of a screenplay moving. I understand right. how to raise the stakes because they did it in that movie. I understand how to ask the audience or get the audience to ask a central question of like, what is going to happen at the climax? And so then, you know, you kind of have that knowledge and then you apply it to your own work. And it's not work you would really do um, as intensely if you weren't teaching because, you know, you feel the responsibility to become a better teacher. It's, it's, it's really great the way it ends up serving me as a writer. So Chris Charles then brought the marksman to you as an idea, as something he had already written? He, he came up with an idea. What happened was we, we had finished writing this... Uh, intergenerational kind of script story, a screenplay about his time as a teen. And he was an angsty teen and he was the driver for George W. Bush's uncle. Hmm. And, and, and so we wrote the screenplay that was semi-biographical about his experience and how this character that, you know, the, the, the character that, that was portraying him needed a friend to help him go through this coming of age transition from high school to real life and how this older man needed a friend to help him uh, transition the coming of age, kind of coming of older age, accepting the limitations of, um, and and just, you know, the the circumstances of, of getting older. And we explored this kind of road trip, intergenerational, helping each other, unlikely characters thing. And so then Chris came to me after we'd finished that script and said, I have a great idea for a new movie. There's these crazy things happening on the border, Arizona-Mexico border. And I was like, okay, uh, tell me more. And he outlined some of the things that were going on down there. And initially it was kind of, some of it was a little yucky and dark. And, you know, um, we, you know, we were like, hmm, this is fascinating. And there are people really struggling in this region and, there, there's some cool stories here, not cool. There, there's some interesting stories here and, and, and deep human stories. Let's find the most moving human stories. And then we latched onto a character, the, the character ultimately played by Liam Neeson, kind of a, a, a broken older person, older in his 60s, you know, older than the child, um, a, a person who's, who's oppressed and, and struggling in his life circumstances, coming across an unlikely person, 
who's also struggling in a very different way, but in a very serious way with an illegal immigrant boy being chased across the border with his mother. And that happened very quickly. And we latched onto those characters and recognized the tremendously powerful human story of two unlikely people helping each other. And it, it kind of borrowed some of the themes and, and some of the mechanisms of that earlier script. And then we wrote it and we were, we were moving. So, so that second version, when that, when that first began to be realized, that was uh, how long ago? That was 10 years ago. Right. Yeah, which is kind of crazy. And so I would imagine the uh, production got sped up with with the events of the last four years and what was happening on the borders since or even just even before Trump got president. Am I right about that? Or, or, or was it was it was it other circumstances that you that are right? Happen? You are right about it. It was paradoxical at times, too, because as the border issues started heating up and became more prominent in the news, there was some there was a school of thought amongst you know the team our management and a producer who was already attached to it they thought oh this this might help bring some attention to this issue and this is a good story that kind of explores these some of these issues but then there was a little pushback and it was like hmm we don't want to necessarily make too political of a movie because or have too political of a script because some of the big studios don't want to wade into this so it was really interesting when trump got elected we thought hmm I wonder how this will impact whether or not this movie ultimately gets made. And then by the time we did get it made, it was almost it, the whole issue. The issues had just been batted around so much that it was fine to go ahead and wade in. And because our story, though it has, you know, it, 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 it talks to or speaks to some of the political issues because it's not overtly a political movie. It just kind of made its way in. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why it's so successful is that it it follows the model of uh, a, a lot of contemporary entertainments in 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 not being political or at least offering um, elements that can appeal to everybody and really finding a human story that is going to be undeniable to viewers no matter what their their persuasion. I I. Uh, was that ever something uh, you and, and the writers had to be, the other writers had to be conscious about? Yes, yes. And that was that was kind of the way we wanted to approach it. So Chris and I always approached it that way and we're very thoughtful about approaching it that way. Our, our, our um, taste in movies tends to be a little more um, hands-off in terms of not, or I should say not as heavy-handed about you know, um, taking a position. So, so that was easier for us. And then the production company that ultimately financed it, they had the same feelings about it. Rob Lorenz, the director, and, you know, he's the third writer on the project. He felt similar. So we were always aware of it. But at that point, you know, by the time the script got into those people's hands, uh, we had avoided a lot of the potential mine, landmines. It, uh, it, you know, it seemed to me that the model had to be to 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 a degree maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong uh the films of clint eastwood which not only you know could this easily have been a a vehicle for clint eastwood maybe 10 or 15 years ago but uh it, it you know it also rides that that fine line i mean here's a guy who's you know well known eastwood for being uh conservative but his you know his movies 
um, from Dirty Harry on up through Unforgiven and A Perfect World are, are argued about in terms of their attitudes towards uh, violence and, and, you know, in, in some cases his, his attitudes towards women and, and crime and, you know, all, all kinds of things that, you know, were, most people might obviously fall on a very kind of obvious right-wing point of view. You can't look at his films and easily say, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is blatantly right wing or this is blatantly left wing. It's he he rides a real fine line there. Was he yeah. was he a model for you? He he was someone as an actor who entered our minds kind of just like you said, Jim, where it was like, hmm, 10 years ago, Leah, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood would have been perfect for this role. Uh, and, and we've seen him in similar roles and similar movies. I mean, he directs, you know, he directed a lot of his own movies. Um, later in his career. So we, we thought of him that way. And then what happened is we kind of recognized when we were done with the first drafts of the script, we were like, this kind of does feel a little bit like a Clint Eastwood kind of story, Gran Torino-ish, or even just the modern Westerns that, you know, he, he does. It felt that way. It wasn't by, it wasn't necessarily conscious choice, but it did feel that way. Yeah. And then there's a, uh, uh, there's a, a clip from, I guess, is that Hang Him High in the in Oh, the yes. Hotel? I think it's Hang Him High. Yeah. I think it is. And and Robert Lawrence, the director, was uh, an assistant to Eastwood on several of his films. That's, is that right? And then he, he directed Trouble with the Curve also. Yeah, that's correct. Robert was, he did a lot with Clint. So he was, he worked his way up. Um, he was a producer of, of most of Clint Eastwood's movies. So he acted as a producer. And then he was either the AD or later in the in, in Clint's career, he was the um the first the second unit director a lot of times so like american sniper that's a great example of him being the um second unit director and he, again he produced a lot of clint eastwood's movies so he he's a really really experienced guy uh was there ever ever then a, a discussion with him about about this being a clint eastwood movie or was it at that point recognized that he was just too old to play the character as written. Yeah, he. The, it, we never even talked about it. it. At that point, you know, he really was. He was a little too old for that role. Um, and there were so many actors in that. There were so many actors that were being considered for it. Uh, but yeah, Clint. He just. I think he just. It was like ten years. Ten years. Even ten years ago, he may have been a tad too old for it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's one of those. Uh, fine things i think you know where the movie rides a fine line is is with the casting i just think it's it's beautifully cast all around but uh you know it could it could just you know even with every word and every shot being the same you know it could just be taken that much off kilter if you cast someone other than liam neeson or you know especially jacob perez as as miguel they're just they're just so perfect did you have any say in, in casting at all yeah, I, 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 before I answer that, I will tell you, I could not agree more. Like, Liam was so good in this because it required a, like a raw, you know, a, it, didn't, it asked uh, of a performance that was quite raw. And he just nailed it. I mean, I've never seen him so vulnerable on film for such a long period of time. And and then Jacob as well. Like, have, I mean, look at this natural acting. That kid did not miss a note the whole movie. It was extraordinary. To answer your question, I did not have any say in it. I would just kind of be, 
not even really consulted. I'd just be kind of in the loop, like, hey, this is who we went out to. And this is who, you know, Rob would tell, the director would tell us, you know, this is who we're going out to. At some point, the financiers, you know, the studio or mini studio in this case, um, they just want to get their movie made. So they will offer it to people who they think are good, but to get a, a big star who can open a movie, you know, who's big enough that they can, you know, kind of bring in an audience. Uh, there's only a handful of people like that. So they kind of go out to all the people in that age group. Um, but Liam was always, always kind of a dream choice. So when it happened, I thought, wow, we just got really lucky. And then when I saw him on set acting and then when I saw the film, I just thought, wow, we really lucked out here. You mentioned you were on set. Uh, what, what, what is, what work gets done while you're on set? Uh, are you paring things down, uh, constantly adding dialogue uh what, what what's happening when you're when the movie's being made so in some situations if movies are in a scramble the writers on set might be tweaking things in our case because everything was locked way before production happened it was it was really just a you know a chance for chris and myself to just be on set and witness stuff and just be around and watch and enjoy what was happening there was never really a need for anything now rob the director, since he, he was one of the, you know, writers and, and um, he occasionally would change a little something and it really didn't require any conversation. You know, he he knew that we trusted completely his judgment. And when it comes time to production, to be in production, you know, if if, if no one's if, if people aren't trusting the director's judgment at that point, it could be a mess. But we we and the producers all trusted his judgment. So there were some little things that he did to the script, but it was pretty locked. Uh, what's kind of fun is that Liam changed a couple things, really subtle little things, but they were wonderful choices that he made, uh, really thoughtful, and it just it showed his commitment to the character that I was so impressed by. Like he really understood the character, he really was passionate about the messages and the characters, and his there's you know there's a subplot going on. You watched the movie, right, Jim? Absolutely. Yeah. So so the subplot that's happening where he's not only protecting Miguel in the main plot to keep him alive, but he's, he's recognizing that Miguel played by Jacob um, is starting to have ideas of revenge because he's been exposed to some violence. Um, he's at that age where innocence starts to, you know, you start to lose innocence to what degree is up to, you know, your circumstances. And so Liam starts to very subtly become his, the protector of his soul in a way, you know, and, um, and, uh, Wait, what was what, what was my train of thought? What were we talking about? Forgive we're me. We're talking about the casting and ad, ad, actors adding. Oh yes, things and yes. Uh, forgive me. So, um, so Liam, he made a couple changes in the dialogue that reflected that commitment to that little, very subtle subplot about protecting Jacob's innocence, and it was really excellent. And my writing partner and I. Um, we were really excited. And I'll tell you one of the places it happened. We were really excited about the trailer moment, which we knew would be a trailer moment. We're in the film. Liam shoots the villain's truck. And right before... You remember that? Ba-boom. Ba-boom. It's a great moment. You know, when I saw it in the theaters, when I saw it in the theaters, um, the crowd cheered. It was just so exciting and fun. And in that moment, I think the line as written the boy says, you know, we got to go. They're going to kill us. And Liam's character says, not if I kill them first. That's how Chris and I originally wrote it. It's badass, right? Yeah. But then Liam changed it 
to not if I get them first. And he explained to me that that he thought in that moment the character would try to still be protecting Jacob's innocence. Hmm. So he wouldn't use that word. I mean, I was so impressed with that thoughtfulness. It was, which and, then, and that's a perfect example of just how committed he was to everything. Well, I imagine he's inspired by what you already wrote as to how that revenge situation, that aspect of the story, and there are other aspects to the action, resolves itself. Uh, that subplot that I was just describing, which does play out you know, and get resolved in the, in the climax, it was something that started kind of sprouting up in, in the various drafts, and it just became this really cool little thing. It's just one of those things you stumble on where your brain just suggests an idea to you. Hey, what if this, you know, little revenge idea starts occurring to this boy who's witnessing violence and came from a world where revenge is common? Oh, wow, that would be cool. And then Chris and I might talk about that a little bit, you know, and and we might recognize very quickly that that could actually be a through line that keeps getting revisited a few times. And then, of course, let's pay it off in the end. Let's see how that does play out. So it was one of those gifts, Jim, that happens when you commit to writing, whether it's a book or a screenplay, where you're just writing and working and working and rewriting, and, and you just start to discover little beautiful things that had never occurred to you, but they were always kind of buried in there, and you uncover them. They're really, they kind of uncovers. It's like it was, it's there if you just look for it. Yeah, that's nice. I, You know... Back to the writing and maybe uh, as you were even talking it out and developing the script with Chris, um, were there any rules that you set up for yourself, either about how much a character could or would say or any other rules you gave yourself as writers in terms of the story, either things that you wanted to play with in terms of the conventions of this kind of story, um, you know, when... uh, when we had David Kep here a few years ago, back to a writer you mentioned earlier, he talked about when he was coming up with uh, War of the Worlds for Tom Cruise and Spielberg that they all discussed that the the script would be, you know, seen from the point of view of this single father, this this alien takeover of the planet would could only be viewed. So there wouldn't be any cutaways to generals in war rooms, you know, discussing this, and 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 that was something that served as, you know, his guiding force for, you know, telling the story. And it's where, all, you know, the power of the movie came from. So I'm just, I'm just curious if, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, the marksman is a, you know, uh, a recognizable genre film, but it, it's, it's surprising in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm curious to know if there were any rules you, you two agreed on as you were writing it. Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. I, I think, I think there was kind of an unspoken understanding, um, as demonstrated by our, by our excitement um, at at discovering what the film could really ultimately be. There was this understanding that, you know, what it could ultimately be, is a cathartic transformational friendship story, uh, a story of a man saving a boy and a boy saving a man. That's when we really got excited and we thought to ourselves, well, we have, like you said, it's a, it's a genre story. It's a road trip thriller getting chased by the bad guys, but let's elevate it because what we're turned on by is that human story and that's what gives us chills. So the kind of unspoken rule was 
let's explore and enrich. Let, let's explore that. Let's, let's go deeper into that. Let's entertain the audience, but let's move them. Let's, let's, cause, cause let's move ourselves emotionally and let's hope to move the audience. And we talked about how it would be received too. We, we knew that when people first saw it, they'd be expecting a genre piece. And we, we hoped that they would appreciate that actually this is, this is kind of subverting that if I'm using the term correctly, subverting that a little bit. Yeah, I would I would think that, you know, one of the things is we don't we don't we have little clues, but we don't really find out why it's called the marksman until the climactic mm-hmm. uh, sequence. So I would I would imagine that was something you you guys set up for yourself. Let's, you know, let's, yeah. let, let's let the title explain itself in due time. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's true. There was some, you know, there's always a commitment. And my partner is really excellent about about staying true to this. Uh you're always, as a writer, struggling against revealing too much versus not revealing quite enough and where, how much can you trust that the audience will understand. And we both like to assume the audience is incredibly bright. But then we don't want to deny them something that they might have to think about so much that they're taken out of the present moment. So that was one of those things where it's like, you know, or just that's a good example of, of how you know, try not to give too much away so that the audience can, you know, they're smart. They're smarter than, than you realize sometimes. Absolutely. And I can imagine for some critics and viewers who watch movies with that discerning eye, um, with intelligence, that in the case of an action-driven story like The Marksman, relative plausibility uh, plays a big role in whether or not they can enjoy the movie. For example, I had you no know, problem accepting that the drug cartel would have this network of computer specialists in the U.S. who could track Jim and Miguel, yeah. you know, their movements at any time. But maybe somebody else, someone else would, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, it's relative plausibility. Yeah. But the movie, I think, as a whole stays pretty grounded. It's not a gonzo action movie, you know, the kind that, you know, Joel, Joel Silver in his, you know, heyday, you know, would have uh, right. produced. And I love those movies, too. But uh, I'm wondering if there were any plausibility issues for uh, you writers that had to be, you know, worked out amongst yourselves? Well, we definitely were very aware of what you're describing. We wanted this to be a a little more real, hyper real, if if you want. You know, No Country for Old Men is a crime thriller. It's very grounded. It feels very real. And we wanted to do that as well. And there were some earlier drafts where there were some things that didn't feel quite real that had to do with the cartel and the plausibility of them being able to pull off what they were pulling off. And, and that was actually uh, something once Rob came on board, Rob Lorenz. You know, you have blind spots when you're writing a script. You, there's just things that, that a fresh set of eyes that's very experienced can notice. And, and, he, and he pointed out some things we could tweak in terms of the cartel and their pursuit that might keep it a little more grounded and make it a little more believable. And as you said, so you know, because you don't want to get taken out of the narrative. And this is not John Wick. You know, this is this is a pretty simple little story. Yeah, John Wick has its own kind of simplicity, but it's it's a fantasy world. It's right. you know, it just has its own rules, you know, based on, you know, whatever fantasy world, you know, that John Wick exists in, you know, which where, yeah. where you know, thing killings are paid off by uh yeah. Awesome stuff too. I love yeah. John Wick. Love it, love it, love it. But your point, 
you know, is just about the realism. And that was something we really, really tried to focus on. Because, you know, it's funny, when the movie was over, you know, the first time I saw it, and I, I'm a huge fan of Little House on the Prairie. I love the stories and the, the messages and the themes and the everything about it. And at the end of this movie, I was looking at it and I was saying, gosh, in some ways, there's a little bit of Little House on the Prairie in this. You know, that beautiful adult child helping wholesomeness thing that happens you know, and that, and, and my point in bringing that up now is that you want, you know, a movie that, that hopes to go for some of that stuff or hit some of those marks is, yeah. um, is more realistic or should, for my taste, I think I'd like it to be. Yeah. Uh, and there's a wonderful animal in it too. The dog, again, perfect yeah. casting, you know. Yeah. Great <laughs> casting. Wasn't Jackson great? Jackson's great. If you know, it's just, you know, the wrong dog, the wrong looking dog, you know, it just, and then. You know, you you don't care, but the, the but the movie has this perfect uh, perfect casting. Also, uh, you know, because Jackson is is if anything uh, Jim's driving force for revenge, and the death of Miguel's mother is is his. Um, and so, uh, you know, if 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 that's not handled believably and oh. uh, grounded, you know, in reality. Um, there's no, you know, what happens to those characters, then there's no, there's no journey for us to be invested in, uh, I guess, as viewers. So yeah, uh, con- congratulations on that front, I should say. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I always think of Jackson as a great example of what, and this is, a, there's a little spoiler alert in this comment, um, or for this comment. It's, it's, a, it's a great example of, you know, the, the, the level of sacrifice the main character has to, you know, make in order to do the right thing. And it really, really takes, you know, it, it really explores that. I thought that was necessary, although some people, you know, wish it weren't so. I, it's funny because I saw the film in a theater and, and some of my film students came along and that was one of the things they said to me. They were like, you know, as, as, as it relates to Jackson, I understand what had to go down. I just wish it hadn't. And I said, yeah, I think the, the characters in the movie wish it hadn't too. And that's kind of why you do it. Absolutely, it's heartbreaking, uh, but it you know it it's completely believable. It does not you know it does not, uh, as a viewer, make you angry at anything except the situation that the characters have to face. Yeah, um, it doesn't pull you out of the movie and make you angry at the filmmakers. Um, and and again, to bring up John Wick, it's you know you it, it's again a perfect example of you know. Here are two movies where once once the dog goes, the movies go in completely different uh, directions and have totally different tones. And yeah, uh, again, I'll say you you pulled it off. Well, I want to ask you uh, something about um, structure. Um, there are a couple of key things as I seem that make the movie so entertaining and satisfying. And the first first is the directness and clarity of the story. Um, you know, after there's this emotional and tragic setup with Miguel and his mother, the film almost becomes diagrammatic in in the narrative strategy um you know like a lot of classic westerns and like a war mission movie you have to get two people to a specific destination over this many miles and this many days and so uh, does does do do maps and diagrams and charts come into play for you two as writers to to keep your sense of the story i mean what is a what does your writer's room uh, look like are there are there things up on the wall 
Yes. Yeah. So there's not things up on the wall, but maps absolutely came into play. I mean, we literally would research, we'd pull up Google Maps and we'd kind of pick the roads and we'd figure out what's the smartest way to go and how might the villain be looking at maps and thinking what's the smartest way to go? What's, you know, so yeah, that that's, it's such a cool thing too, because um, it allows you to literally go on and map out a journey you know, in such a real way. But yeah, it was, it was a huge part of it. We'd always be checking, going back, making sure that, you know, might, might they get off here? Why wouldn't they go here? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, there's maps in the movie too. Absolutely. Yeah. The maps play a a big part in, in the narrative and at least in terms of the cartels tracking and, and, uh, and, and, and establishing, uh, uh, Jim as a, as a decidedly analog guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then uh, I guess the other question related to that is, um, in terms of in terms of the writing technology, you started writing this more than ten years ago, and technology has has changed. Although I I would I guess I imagine when you started writing this, there were iPhones and you know personal tracking devices and all that. Has did that uh, did that change at all uh, as the movie became? came closer to production, the you know, technology aspect? It, it didn't really because we, we, we kept it pretty old school, you know, in the, in, in the earlier drafts. We, we recognized that this character probably is a little old school in the way he goes about in, interacting with the world, so he might not have some of that technology. And that, that actually freed us up a little bit. There were some, there were some variations. Uh, there, there were some different drafts that explored... Um, some more technical ways of doing things on the part of the villains, and then those drafts kind of went away. But Jim was always a little bit, like I said, old school, and and so it didn't become a problem as as technology got better that, that we'd have to adjust anything really. That's great. Um, one last question: You said you've been able to see the movie in a theater. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about about that experience? You said the audience was cheering at one point, and. What, what it felt like for you and, and what are your hopes for um, this movie's future? It's coming to an, I guess it's theatrical run or is, is, I don't know if it's starting to slow down or coming to an end or, or um, what, uh, how do you hope uh, people see the movie uh, in the months and even years to come? Yeah, so the theatrical run will probably stick around a little while just because of the pandemic. You know, um, there's not a, a, there's not all that many of us in there in the theaters right now. So I expect the movie to stick around for longer than it normally would have, and then I think in late March um, or early April it might you know be be able to be rented at home. Um, and so I'll answer the first part of the question of you know what was my experience in the theater like, and then I'll tell you what what I'm kind of hoping for it. So the theater experience was, was really dreamy. The The first time I saw it in the theater was when it first opened, I rented a, a theater and, and me and four, I guess five other people went and kind of did our own little premiere. And that was r- super fun. As you can imagine, the, the little theater made it all private for us, set out like a red carpet. And yeah, I mean, they, they you know, they, they, they were really kind in, in what they did. And you know, we were masked up and, 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 you know, following all the protocols. And uh, it was great. It was great. I, we, we probably spent two hours in the theater talking, my, my, my friends, and they, they had questions about the filming and everything. And I was kind of picking their, 
brains a little bit. But when I saw it recently in the movie theater, when Chicago theaters opened up um, more and people were able to go to, to the theater, I went on a Saturday late matinee. And I was surprised to see the theater was almost packed uh, in terms of COVID capacities. It was, you know, it was a lot of people in there, like 40, 50 people in there. And I'd say six or seven of them were my students. And it was, it was fun because I thought, oh, I can kind of see a movie the way I'm used to seeing movies. And you can read the audience's reactions a little bit. And as the story went on, uh, and, and I have my own ideas about what works in the movie and what it's trying, what I want it to accomplish and what it does when it moves me or grabs me. And it started, what this really neat thing started happening, all the moments that I thought were really precious or hard-hitting or cool or whatever, the audience started reacting to them in a way that, that was positive. Uh, for example, when the car flips, I, you know, I said the, the audience cheered and there were laughs in all the right places. And then towards the end, when the movie really starts getting emotional, there were people crying. My, I, I, I turned to the person I was with, and she said to me, the, the people up there in front, you know, 20 feet uh, uh, in front of us in that row, the woman's weeping. And then, you know, and then, and, and, and that, was, that was cool because she was moved. And, and the, the, when the credits came up, the whole audience broke into applause. And what a gift for me. I'm sitting there and people are crying and people are applauding. And afterwards, you know, we spoke to the woman who was a few rows in front of us and asked her what she, how she liked the movie. And, you know, they were, they were gushing about it a little bit. And, and um, yeah, it was just very, very special because it's not a, this is not a time right now where, where you can have an experience like that. And, and not everyone who worked on the movie got to experience that. So that was really cool. And then, of course, my students came out to the hallway with me and we stood around and talked for 10 or 20 minutes and I was able to ask them, you know, what did you like? What were your favorite moments? That little thing that director did, did you like that? And, and I mostly just listened. And I'm really thrilled at how much people are liking this. And they're liking it in the ways I wanted them to. And they're moved in the ways I, I, I wanted them to and that Chris, my writing partner, and certainly Rob Lorenz, in all the ways we wanted them to enjoy it, they are. Um, but seeing it in a theater like that, uh, it was extra special because people, that particular crowd really, really dug it. Uh, my hope for the movie is, I think the movie's actually going to um, find more of its audience, even more, when it, when it kind of is able to be viewed by more people. And the reason I say that is because there is a group of people who love Liam's action movies quite a bit. And I do too. But there's a whole group of people who the movie wasn't necessarily marketed to, uh, who are more drama fans that have yet to see the movie for various reasons. I'll give you a perfect example. My, my older parents who aren't comfortable going to a movie theater. They actually, I shouldn't say that. They did rent the theater out with, with a small family and everyone was masked and they felt safer. Um, they did see the movie in the theater. But, but there are older people I know who aren't going to the movie theaters um, or people who just aren't aware of the movie and I know that, or I hope that the people who love dramas and who kind of love those kind of deeply, uh, or, or, you know, more human stories will get to see it and quite, quite enjoy it too. So I hope more people discover it. I suspect they will. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think, you know, your, the reaction you got was, um, uh, not surprising, 
uh, after having watched the movie myself and, and very well-earned and well-deserved uh, reaction to the film. I, I, I hope people discover it too. It it plays well at home. That's how I got to see it mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, really enjoyed it and um, really enjoyed seeing uh, de- details of characters that <laughs> very quickly and very easily made you care about them and got you hooked into them and it and it and it carries along you know from the beginning of the film to the end so uh, again congratulations and uh, it's uh, good to talk to a, a graduate of our department and and uh, our university and and uh, wish you all the best of the film going forward. Well, you know, th- that's really nice. I appreciate all of the things you just said there, and I, I I'm grateful that that you enjoyed the film, and and I appreciate the the, the comments about them. And I will tell you, it never gets old um, to hear from anyone that they enjoyed it, or, or you know the, the certain ways they they enjoyed it. So um, that means a lot to me to hear from you. So thank you, and yeah, it's great. I, I was really thrilled to be able to do this because. Yeah, I mean, it all started in Madison for me, in a way. Great. Well, you know, you 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 t- what you've told me about going to see this in the theater uh, has been you know one of the most inspiring things I've heard in a long time. To hear that reaction and and to know that you know people are 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 not only uh, enjoying that move the movie on that level, but uh, you know that that that. That, that they they want to enjoy the movie on that level that they're you know uh, and and ready to do it um, again hopefully very soon uh, as things become safer and safer so yeah. uh, thanks again for sharing that with us oh yeah my pleasure my pleasure. Yeah.